Welcome to another episode of the Heck Yeah Comics Podcast with your hosts, David and Nick. In this episode, we lose another director. Prepare to get scared by Marvel, remain unworthy, and have a meeting of the Super Sons. Stay tuned for all of this and more. Hello and welcome everybody to a brand new episode of the Heck Yeah Comics Podcast, uh, starring myself, David Luzader, and and joining me is of course the irreplaceable and uh, irredeemable Nick Shermooksness. This is very true. I am the worst person alive. I, I am. I am the yeah, the irredeemable Nick Shermooksness. I wouldn't say worst. Charles Manson is still alive. So is he still alive? He is still alive. I'm sorry, <laughs> so, I didn't want to take that. That's how bad I am that I'm trying to take the <laughs> worst person alive label from Manson. So. Ooh, that's rough. Uh, man, so I, I I just watched this really bizarre '80s movie. Have you ever seen Heather's? I I know of Heather's, and maybe I've seen it once a long time ago, but I have like zero memory on it. It's this like really bizarre 1980s dark comedy that I kind of totally got into like with how weirdly dark it was dark in which way like so it's about these these two high school kids who uh start killing their classmates and oh. and setting them up to look like suicides but it's oddly like lighthearted the whole time like you never like feel like like one of the characters starts to have remorse and guilt about it, but she like never goes to the cops. She just kind of like deals with it and moves on. Uh, it's, sorry if I'm spoiling a a movie that is almost thirty years old at this point, uh, but it is it is very bizarre and and uh, made me laugh at 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 some like really like what should be some really dark heavy moments. Uh, so if you're looking for a good dark comedy out there, I would actually recommend 1988's Heather's, starring Winona Ryder and Christian Slater. 1988, yeah, this came out the year I was born, and Same also the year you were born. Yeah, man, we just revealed our birth year to the audience. Oh, well, we already gave them our names. It's true. So combined with that, they can uh, they can finally steal our identities. We know you guys have been out there trying to take our identities for the longest time. And uh, and now you can. It's just that simple. We appreciate it. We we needed some extra drama in our lives, so tops. Yeah. Well, now that we've set that prerogative, why don't we just go ahead and dive headfirst into the news? Our top story today. The great Jamboni, eccentric human cannonball known for taking his lucky donkey to all his performances, escaped near tragedy today when the donkey climbed into the cannon muzzle just as Jamboni was taking off. It took the surgeons three hours to remove Jamboni's head from his ass. That's not our real top story, but it, it, it would be a good one if it was. No, our real top story is that the Flash movie has lost director Rick... 
I'm gonna mess up this last name. Famuyima. I actually think I got that correct. Uh, anyway, in a report that came out Monday, uh, it was revealed that Rick Famuyima, uh, who was made big waves with his uh, movie Dope, has parted ways with the studio over creative differences. Saying in a statement, when I was approached by Warner Brothers in DC about the possibility of directing The Flash, I was excited about the opportunity to enter this amazing world of characters that I loved growing up and still do to this day. I was also excited to work with Ezra Miller, who is a phenomenal young actor. I pitched a version of the film in line with my voice, humor, and heart. While it's disappointing that we couldn't come together creatively on the project, I remain grateful for the opportunity. I will continue to look for opportunities to tell stories that speak to a fresh generation, fresh generational, topical, and multicultural point of view. I wish Warner Brothers, DC, John Berg, Jeff Johns, and Ezra Miller all the best as they continue their journey into the Speed Force. So sad well, news. Huh? Nice yeah, it's sad news, but it's it doesn't seem like it it uh, is tearing anybody up you know this is that this seems like an amicable split uh which is pretty nice you know i feel like the last couple of times we've directed on or uh, we've talked about movies losing their directors there always was kind of this animosity rumored mm-hmm. and this just seemed like they you know we're, we're talking about it and it just he was pitching one idea and the studio you know was saying here's what here's where we want the movie to line up along with, you know, Justice League and all that, and they just couldn't reconcile those two ideals. It happens. Yep. It happened with, uh, <laughs> happened with Ant-Man, which, it uh, did. and this is nice. It would have been to have seen the Edgar Wright version of Ant-Man. I wouldn't, I would say that I definitely enjoyed the Peyton Reed version. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing to, he'll need to remember, and there was a lot of, you know, talk. It's interesting because Marvel, you know, Marvel has a lot of goodwill built up. And they've definitely earned it. Uh, you know, uh, Edgar Wright left the film a couple days into production, which is usually that sends a film into free fall. A lot of bad things happen. And so they went out and they found a, a director that was willing to work in their in their playhouse, you know. Edgar Wright didn't like how connected the film had to be to the bigger to the bigger MCU, uh, even though I felt like it was a really small connection by, mm-hmm. by the end of it. And so, whatever the difference was here, you know, people like to look at it and be like, "Well, DC obviously doesn't know how to work with with filmmakers, and they're just trying to do everything by the by their numbers and blah blah blah." Which really, that's the same thing in a lot of ways that Marvel does. If you're not gonna if you're not gonna do what what they have set out. You know, you're not going to work on their films, but DC needs to, you know, get, get some hits or get some, uh, crowd pleasers, I should say, not necessarily hits. They need to get some crowd pleasers under their belt. I think before people start jumping on these sort of things and tearing them down. And yes, this is the second director to leave the project, but the other director was Seth Graham Smith, who... No offense to that guy, he hasn't directed a movie yet. We don't know what kind of f- film he was going to be, and his writing credits, as far as movie goes, are not the strongest. He worked on Fantastic Four. 
The new Fantastic Four? Yes. Oh. I mean, I think it was such a train wreck, it's hard to say for sure what, you know, where all the blame lies. There's like five different versions of that film before we got the final one. That's but, very true. Um, but in the meantime, people can look forward to um, R.L. Stein projects at Marvel. Uh, R.L. Stein came out in a Reddit a- AMA saying that he was writing a comic book uh, for Marvel Comics, but could not reveal any details. Uh, this would be his first comics work ever. Um, and let I me mean, just in general for Marvel and otherwise. And he can't talk about that. that is literally the new story. Um, it'll be interesting if it's a story, uh, if it's a project set within the Marvel universe, or if he's just like, who's the guy I'm thinking of? Was it George Romero? George Romero did like a comic series that was like Empire of the Dead or something like that, that like had nothing to do with Marvel characters. It was just a zombie comic being published by Marvel. Um, so it'd be interesting if it's just something like he's just doing his own thing or if he's actually writing for like one of their characters. See, I think, I think we're, we're going to look at, we're going to be seeing a storyline like Marvel zombies, uh, or, you know, Deadpool versus the Marvel universe, but it's going to be the Marvel universe versus slappy, uh, the dummy from the, the goosebumps books. And it will be the greatest villain they've ever faced because that dummy is terrifying. Uh, and he will just lay waste to absolutely everything. Or it was Deadpool kills. So yeah, it'll be Slappy. Slappy scares the Marvel. I, there we go. Slappy scares the Marvel universe. Boom. Uh, this uh, he actually he has. Uh, he also mentioned in this AMA that he has an adult horror book coming out. Um, yeah, so he's he's you know he's still busy. He's still doing stuff. I'm interesting because the thing about it, like I don't know how old he was when we were kids reading his books, but. I mean, this guy has been churning out pretty consistent work for a long time. He is incredibly prolific. I, I was listening to a podcast that he was on, and he said at one point he was writing one book a month, uh, and people thought that he, um, like it, like R.L. Stein must be a collective of people. He has 73. Like he, he's like a bunch of ghostwriters? Yeah. Uh, he is 73 years old. I just want to point that out. Wow, okay. So respect. Yeah, no, and he's he's still working quite a bit. You know, he could just he could be writing off on all of those uh, the the sweet sweet uh, goosebumps money. Also, every picture of him, he looks so unamused by whatever is going on. Just just do a Google image, just do a Google search for R.L. Stein and look at all the photos. I'm I'm encouraging you at home to stop whatever you're doing. If you're driving, pull off onto the side of the road. Uh, and uh, and look up R.L. Stein, and it's it's very amusing to me. I'm I'm just I'm mystified by this guy. He's he. It's interesting they got Jack Black to play him. So I and actually but no he he's just he's just got this 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 just smirk on his face. Uh-huh. He Ooh. he was like he was like a joke writer before he, he wrote, was a joke writer. Before, yeah, before he started writing Goosebumps. You know who should have played him. Fred Armisen. If you look at Fred Armisen, oh, I can Arl Stein, totally see that. Yeah, that yeah, that's good. Have been him. Nothing oh, that's Jack Black or anything. That's but. real good. Oh man, uh, I forgot to ask you. Do you have any uh, director in mind who you would like to see tackle the Flash before we, we you know move on further into the show? Um. That was like the kind of thing that I suppose if I really dedicated a lot of brain power and, and like care to, I could probably come up with someone. 
but I have no idea. Okay. Well, yeah. What about you? Who, who do you? Who do you see? Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I have anyone directly off the top of my head. Just because of all the quick cuts that could go into it, I think Edgar Wright would be really great in it, or as a director for it. Uh, actually, that that's a good question. But we'll we'll have to revisit that maybe maybe next episode. Take a week to think about that. Fair enough. Uh, this this other news story was one that I selected because I think. It, it has some very interesting implications, and, and I'll talk about that after, uh, you know, just saying what the, what the story is. Uh, so it is that Trina Robbins uh, is giving new life to her father's 1938 Yiddish stories. I'm going to butcher the Yiddish name of this uh, story because I don't speak Yiddish. Uh, a minion Yidden. Uh, translated from Yiddish as A Bunch of Jews is an upcoming graphic novel anthology based on the long out-of-print and long-lost Yiddish books that uh, the author's father, Max B. Perlson, published in 1938. The stories are a snapshot of New York City in the 1930s with stories about real people akin to Will Eisner's A Contract with God or the journalism studies of uh, Studs Terkel. And there's a Kickstarter for this that I will I will link into the show notes. Uh, just something from the the writer herself uh, uh, said that the book was written in Yiddish and thought lost by everyone uh, in my family. But then my daughter found a copy on the internet and I bought it. Since then I'd uh, been put in digital form to be read, but only if you read Yiddish. So she found it, I bought it, and had it translated, and once that was done, I realized they were great stories, snapshots of time long gone, and it should be a graphic novel. Why I love this story, and I'm talking about it, is because this is a great example of comics preserving history, and in a way that other mediums can't necessarily do, uh, where it's going to give us a... a, a, a a representation with words and with pictures and it's it's it reminds me a lot of uh, mouse actually when i think about it mm-hmm. uh but nick what do you what do you think of this this book coming out um you know it's it's i'm, I'm sad to say that as much as that then there's a few you know sort of independent kind of historical nonfiction or kind of slice of life stuff on my shelf um you know uh I would like to think that I'll check this out. Uh, it definitely the, the the narrative behind it and how it's come to be is is really impressive and really inspiring. So I, I really hope that the Kickstarter project is successful. Um, and definitely, you know, we'll try to keep an eye on it and and see how it develops. So mm-hmm. even um, even outside of even outside of our personal, because I'll be perfectly honest, uh, I I may throw this up in the show notes. And maybe in a you know in six months I'll think about it, but I, maybe honestly not. Um, just you know the idea of comics being used to preserve history. What are you, what are your thoughts on on that in relation to the story in relation just to comics in general? Because you know people still kind of view them as you know dumb little throwaway books, which is just weird. That they do. I mean, it's literally when I, and not that it comes up very often to me, like to my face or anything, but whenever like someone does make comments like that, I'm just like, when was the last time you actually looked at a comic? Oh yeah. I, I honestly believe you know that. I mean? Yeah. I could, I could recommend a comic for anybody if I talked to them long enough. Yeah. And not it's, like, it's yeah. 
No, what, what, keep saying. Well, what I was going to say, not not even like a superhero story. You know, I'm not going to be like, you You would really enjoy this run of Superboy or this Mark Wade run of The Flash. Uh, it's I, I would find like probably a graphic novel from an indie publisher that they would really like. Yeah. Oh, you like crime? Here's a crime book. Oh, you like the supernatural? Here's a supernatural. You like sci-fi? Here's sci-fi. You know, you like the superhero movies? Here's a superhero book. But I mean, like, literally in the same way that movies or TV shows or even prose novels, you know, are depicting various genres and events and characters and all that, and they're selling in the millions, comic books are doing the exact same thing in their own art form. Like, it's just a vehicle to tell stories, and the fact that people, like, think that comic books are innately dumb... You know, it's just it's just weird. It's like they think, oh, well, I got picture books for my kids, and comics are basically picture books, right? So they must be dumb things because kids read picture books and bah. Yeah, picture um, books with swear words and boobs. Yeah, not all God, of them, but mature. A number um, of them. But to your point, the idea of using comic books to preserve history, to preserve this language, is is very very cool. Like, there's not much to say on it besides that. It's uh, a wonderful idea. I think comic books are a unique vehicle for that um, in the sense that, you know, sometimes you can read, the, assuming that all the depictions in the book, artistic depictions in the books will be accurate, you can read something and form a vision in your head that might not always be indicative of reality, no matter how good the writing is. So mm-hmm. having a book that might be able to more accurately depict some of these stories will give you just like really as if you're staring into the window of history. Uh, and that's something that can't be done in just about any other medium. Yeah. So I'm impressed with it. I'm happy for it. I, I think this is also a cool way to pass these stories along to uh, a, a generation in a way that, that they would be more inclined to read them because, you know, younger generations uh, than ourselves are, are more inclined to read comics and are, are more into that scene. Uh, so this is something, you know, there there are hundreds of books about, you know, New York in the 1930s or about Jewish history. Uh, but this is something that, you know, you, you can kind of trick a high schooler into, into learning some, something about, you know, the, about history by being like, look, it's in a comic book. Uh, there's lots of books about the Holocaust out there that I haven't read, <laughs> but I definitely read mouse because that's in my wheelhouse. And now I'm rhyming. Maybe you in your uh, wheel mouse. <laughs> oh, ha, ha, ha. Uh, and I really enjoyed Mouse, and it definitely inspired me to go out and learn more about that time period, and uh, and just you know the the Holocaust in general, because there's lots of stuff that honestly I don't know. And so if that can if th- if this book can do something like that for someone in a future generation or someone even our age, then hey, I think it's it's worth even it's worth it to even publish that one. Yeah, and I think it's, especially looking at, like, our generation, you know, say 20 years from now, we're in our, when we're pushing our, <laughs> our 50s, um, oh, um, what am I trying to say? You know, w- w- I mean, m- many of us, well, not many of us, but those of us of our generation that our teachers, like, have grown up with our pop culture sensibility and our sort of open-mindedness when it comes to different narrative vehicles like comic books. Um, so I know that like, I've seen that like certain schools are allowing in different comic books. I'm sure that's more or less attributed to teachers that have come in that thought that these books were transformative and, and, and informative and, and, and are true narrative, like near narrative teaching devices wanting to bring them in the classroom. So I think as our generation gets older and then even the people, the younger generation before us get older 
comic books will be something that ultimately the stigma of them will go away. And if opportunities like this with the Yiddish book or any other historical comic drama, drama, I say dramas, but uh, the, mm, narratives can be brought into classrooms because there are clearly kids that just don't want to read, but there are people, kids that might enjoy reading comic books and this could potentially inspire them to read prose novels. And as much as I think people need to read, like read prose novels, like, and I, I mean, this isn't an argument. It's like, yes, pr- being able to read prose is incredibly important. A lot of people that read prose don't even realize it's called prose, by the way. Um, wow, that was the most pretentious thing you've ever said. And you've said a lot of pre- <laughs> um, pretentious things. I did. But I mean, like, the fact of the matter is that comic books are just as valid as an art form and a narrative form for, like, the social development. And at the end of the day, like, not ever, like, if you want to really, really, really read and become a writer, like, that's super important. If you just want to read casually and just sort of help inform your worldview and your social standards or whatever the case may be, there's really no difference between refining it in a comic book, you know, versus a book, versus a prose book. So, long story short, good job, Trina Robbins. <laughs> yes, that's what we're trying to say here at this point. Uh no, I think you, you said a lot of great stuff on the subject. There's not much else that has to be said. That pretty much does it for the news. Kind of a little bit of a lighter news week this week. Uh, and I, I, I'm i sure we will talk be talking all about Doctor Strange's box office numbers. It did pull in big numbers this last weekend internationally. Uh, but domestic is where it's really going to rake in that dough. Uh, but, oh, crap. It's Wednesday night, isn't it? Yes. I am seeing it tomorrow night. I literally might forget that I'm seeing the movie tomorrow night. Goodness. Well, while you deal with the implications of that, let us jump into the poll list. To the Batmobile. Let's go. This is the part of the show where we talk about comics that came out this week. And, Nick, traditionally we start with you, and uh, we're not going to shake things up now, so hit us with Unworthy Thor number one. The Unworthy Thor, number one, by Jason Aaron, Olivier Coppel, and Matthew Wilson. Uh, Well, since the end of Original Scent, also written by Jason Aaron, the God of Thunder is no longer worthy of wielding the mighty hammer Mjolnir, or Mew Mew, or whatever. Uh, And more or less since he's been became unworthy, he's been on a warpath to become worthy again, basically. Um, and at this point, it doesn't even matter if it's his own hammer. It, he will wield some hammer-ish form. Um, and basically, this Unworthy Thor is actually a miniseries. It's not a new ongoing series, which is interesting because Marvel announces everything as an ongoing series, and they've opted to be restrained and just call this a five-issue miniseries. Um, so this miniseries is uh, f- running parallel to current events going on in the Mighty Thor series, which is featuring the Jane Foster Thor. Um, and this is sending the unworthy Thor on the journey to find the Hammer of Ultimate Thor, which transported to the main Marvel Universe at the end of Secret Wars. Ultimate Thor is the Thor of the Ultimate Universe. He had a swanky-ass-looking hammer, uh, while Ultimate Thor is no longer with us along with the Ultimate Universe. His hammer managed to survive, and Unworthy Thor, uh, also basically being being going by the moniker Odinson at this point, um, um, believes that if he can retrieve this hammer, he will regain sort of the spirit and reputation and power that he once wielded. 
Um, it was a good book as someone that has more or less been following Jason Aaron's Thor run from the beginning with Thor God of Thunder. Um, it's nice to see some of this payoff potentially coming. I think that at this point, like I don't remember even when original sync came out like two over two years ago, um, that we've been wanting to know exactly what it was. that Nick Fury whispered the Thor, uh, who Nick, that old Nick Fury actually makes an appearance in this issue as the unseen. Um, but we want to know what's going on. So if that doesn't get revealed in this miniseries, I have no idea when the hell he's going to review, reveal yeah. it because this, this is the time to do it. They're just milking it at this point. And, but it's like at the point where I, I respect the long game, but it's like at this point, what the hell did Thor do <laughs> that made like, it's like for me, at least the way I understood how the hammer works is that like when he was willing the hammer prior to like the start of his comic book adventures, like he was willing, he was worthy. And then he got, you know, super egotistical and Thor. And then, um, Odin was like, you must be worthy to re- wield this hammer. And Thor ultimately had to learn a life of humility um, to gain it back. That's what made him worthy. So it wasn't like, so it was like, it was him like existing, you know, mm-hmm. him like eventually coming to this sort of character understanding of who we need to be as a person that made him worthy again. Whereas up until Nick Fury whispered something into his ear, he was worthy. You know what I mean? So it wasn't, so it's either that he did something and doesn't remember doing it and somehow the hammer doesn't, the mystical aspect of the hammer doesn't take that into question or simply being told whatever it is this, this is just suddenly man where it's just, it's a weird situation to be in because I don't think like if he already did it, he never should have been wor- worthy to begin with or since the point that he ever did whatever this terrible thing is that's made him unworthy. So what I mean by that is we've been waiting this long to find out if we wait too much longer, and for some people maybe they've waited too long, like it's just all the steam might get blown out of the, or there's no steam in sales. All the wind might get blown out of the sails. So I just I don't even I can't even speculate on exactly what he done. Like, I mean Thor's done some pretty crazy stuff in like the millennia that he's been alive, like things that we probably send people to jail for. So I mean like I don't know what makes people unworthy in the Marvel universe, um, but. Getting back on topic, uh, it's a good book. The The writing by Aaron is strong. He has this weird ability to, like, infuse whatever he's working on, even, like, something that's steeped in Norse mythology. But he infuses it with, like, this southern charm, like, hillbilliness. Um, not to say that they're both are comparable, but there's, like, a... Like, the, like, he'll bring in trolls, and the trolls just seem, like, kind of ignorant hillbillies. Or, like, the way that, like, he'll write certain lines of dialogue it's like he's almost trying to write it in this like shakespearean effect like a shakespearean effect but as if if shakespeare like grew up in the south you know what i mean and not like an educated self like an uneducated self it is a really weird like analogy or metaphor or whatever to make but that's basically the 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 feelings i get off the book if you are not caught up on recent thor events this is not the book for you um well i think it was very easy to read uh, I definitely recommend going back and starting with Thor, God of Thunder, where this all began, and then working your way up through there. Because at this point, Jason Aaron has written like five different Thor volumes of Thor to get to this point. And you'll probably be confused. But if you love Olivier Coppel's artwork, catching up on all that work while the working of itself is great, you will just be blown away by just how excellent his artwork in the, is in this issue. And I can't wait to read the next one. So there you go. The unworthy Thor was worthy of my time. All right. Well, I have never read a Thor comic, and I probably won't start here, but if I do, it's good to know that it's uh, it's worth it. 
It's worth it. But David, tell me how Superman number 10 is. <laughs> and I'll point out that I have read this as well, so feel like you, you can be loose with the details. Uh, well, yes, yes, I, I, I will be loose with, with the details. Uh, and there are many in this book, and that's part of what, what I really enjoyed about it. Uh, but just to uh, to get into, you know, because we, like we like to mention who's behind what is going on while I'm flipping through to find it. Uh, okay, so this is Superman number 10, written by... Peter J. Tomasi and Patrick Leeson with Patrick Leeson on pencils, uh, Mick Gray on inks, uh, John Calise on colors, and Rob Lee on letters. And what I love about this book is that we are getting a major return to Batman uh, and Robin, and we get to see uh, Patrick Leeson drawing Robin again and Goliath and Maya, and my heart is just so very, very happy for those those few reasons alone here is what happens in the issue uh for those who are, are not reading superman it it definitely has been about superman but there's also been a strong showing of his son mm-hmm. uh who i would say this issue follows a little bit more uh closely this this whole issue and and storyline appear to be a setup for the super sons book that's going to be coming out that I I can't wait for. Uh, anyway, while at school, John, uh, what what's the last name they're using? John White. John White. John White, uh, aka Superboy, uh, runs into Maya, a mysterious girl who doesn't go to the school but is there for some reason. And then after school, he parts ways with his friends and decides to go into this creepy grove to look for a good tree for Christmas. Uh, while there, he runs into some spooky stuff and encounters Nobody and Goliath. Uh, Nobody is secretly Maya. Uh, anyway, they manage to save John from the spooky stuff in the forest, uh, but not before putting him out. Oh, and his freeze breath. Uh, manifests itself. Anyway, when he awakens, he is in Damien's lair. Damien, a.k.a. Robin. Uh, Batman shows up, isn't very happy about this event. Uh, Superman shows up, is very not happy about this event. Uh, Tensions start to rise. uh, But luckily, things get diffused. and, uh, And Superman agrees that even though he has run his own tests on John using Kryptonian technology, that maybe they should do something with human technology just to cover all their bases. Uh, and while they're working on those results, you have Damien and John talking, and of course it turns into a, my my dad is better than your dad, my dad's Batman, my dad's Superman. Uh, they turn and turns into a little fight that gets broken up by the super dads, and that's where things kind of leave off. Uh, like I said, this this book is the rejoining of Tomasi and Gleason, uh, who have been working on this book already, but bringing in uh, Batman and Robin, uh, which makes me so so very happy. Uh, I, I've said that four times by now, and I'm going to to continue saying it. Does it make you happy, David? Uh, it makes me so very happy. 
All right, I just wanted to make okay. sure. Uh-huh. Uh, as far as story goes, things are a little straightforward. There's some times where the dialogue is... I'm not quite sure why Jonathan uh, White is, is so cool with having been captured. Uh, he's, he's like really like playing it down. Like, no, this isn't a big deal. It's totally fine that this happened to me. Uh, which I get, you know, he's Superman's son. He's, stuff's going to roll off his, off his back, but he just seems so gleeful to go along with it. Um, that aside, you know, that, that, that would maybe be my, my biggest issue with the flow of this, but things do flow rather well. Uh, I'm, I'm a little confused by also what was in that spooky forest. And I hope that comes back up. Uh, also, weirdest place to find a Christmas tree ever. Yeah, I don't know why he decided that grove was a good place to look with weird, creepy, eye-glowing monster mooses. Mises? Not getting into that debate right now. <laughs> As someone who uh, gets called moose at work, uh, I was quite delighted by that page. <laughs> Just throwing that out there has nothing to do with the comic, except that there was a giant spooky moose in the comic. Uh, it was really nice to have the return of Maya, who I was kind of wondering what she's been up to. Uh, and this also refers to my Teen Titans review of last week, where it's where it starts off and Damien's like, I don't have any friends. And this book comes around and it's like, here's Damien's friend. And they're like so close that she's calling him brother. But, you know, Damien doesn't have friends. Guys. Not uh, eh. Well, I mean, but, apparently they're brother and sister, so... <laughs> it's interesting how how Maya slash nobody is so like like she's a Batman character now like she, she like, is I mean, yep. that she never she wasn't before but like I'll be interested to see as time goes on if she gets more entrenched in this universe because it's Peter Tomasi who is co-writing Superman who will be solo writing the Super Sons book when it comes out next year mm-hmm. so and looking I mean this was the original promotional artwork uh, I believe the cover was done by. Jorge Jimenez as well, and you do see Goliath on there, so the likelihood that uh, nobody slash Maya will show up in Super Sons is probably pretty high. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really also really like the writing on Superman himself in this book. Even though this is Superman, he is kind of playing a supporting role, which I think works. Uh, we, you know, we know Superman. We've gotten some really good stuff out of these last uh, nine issues before this uh, of Superman. And we're getting some really great stuff uh, other places with with the original Clark Kent. Uh, So it's okay, I think, for him to to not be at the forefront. But the way that he's written um, as a very protective father works really great in this issue. And he also has just such a genuine Superman moment when things kind of calm down a little bit. And he notices that Maya is hiding in the corner. Uh, And... She's like, you're not supposed to be able to see me because I'm I'm over here invisible. And he says, sometimes all we need is knowing that the right people are out there looking for us. Besides, it's hard to miss that smile, young lady. Which is that is just that is a such a Superman moment. Mm-hmm. Um, like thing you know, tensions are going crazy. Batman and Superman almost just threw down, and now that things are fine, it's like here I am being the all-American, white shining teeth. White picket fence, uh, white milk and cereal. I don't other American things. Uh, and also just just continuing on that that really great characterization. Uh, I thought Batman and Superman had a really nice moment where uh, reviewing Jonathan's test results, 
and knowing that he doesn't have all the answers to what's going on uh, he asks Batman do you think that our parents had the best you know had these kind of questions about us as well uh, which kind of is a dick thing to say to Batman anyway uh, well, he said, specifically, our dads, I think growing up, that our dads had this many questions raising us. And he said, yes, all good fathers do. Uh, which is just a nice a nice little moment. The interaction between Damien and, and John themselves, I, I again, I thought was really great. Um, you know, my dad is Batman, my dad is Superman moment that, that led to a little bit of fisticuffs, which is dangerous when one of them is superpowered and one is formerly superpowered. Uh, yeah, how awesome would it be if Damien still has his superpowers? Uh, he would have, he would have just gone at him, at him headlong and it would have been pretty rad. Uh, but leading over into the artwork now, one thing I really liked about this book is the details. And I think that these two worked really, really well in that, um, like the batarangs that everybody keeps pulling out. Uh, are all green and glowing, obviously, you know, ready to take on Superman. Uh, when Superman appears on the scene, he's got the, the, the you know those red glowing eyes, and he appears kind of like this monster bursting onto the scene, mm-hmm. even though it's Superman. Uh, same thing with Batman when he first appears; he's very much in the shadows, uh, looming over everything. Just to see Goliath back, drawn by. Uh, drawn by Gleason is just is, is uh, makes me so happy. I'm just going to say that again. Uh, it, he looks, he looks right again. One, another small detail I loved, uh, was when Jonathan hit Damien and he goes flying. And before Damien can get up and react, uh, the cat Alfred jumps on his face because we also have Alfred Titus and bat cow in this book. And, uh, and, it's wonderful. I I don't want to say the word happy again, so I'm saying it's wonderful at this point. What? Well, well, well hold on. I'm not done with this yet. No, okay. Keep, no, right, keep going. On. Keep telling us how happy, wonderful it is. I'm just going to talk about this last page because because they do come to fisticuffs and and as they're kind of going at each other, uh, something knocks the battering out of Damien's hands, and they look over and just standing over them are the two outlined figures. And this is really, I, I think, one of the strongest art moments in this book. And even though this is a book that's shipping, uh, uh, that's doing double shipping, we've talked about how that's kind of hurt some of the art on a few of these books. But I thought this one didn't have that feeling at all. It it really it really felt polished. Um, in this last page, you have the silhouettes of, of Batman and Superman standing over them. And you can kind of, you can make out their symbols on their chests, but their eyes are both, glowing in this kind of darkness and it has this very authoritarian stance uh that really does seem like despite the fact that they're two heroic iconic figures that this is how an upset father would look looking down on a child no matter (laughs) if he was super powered or not and it's their last line of dialogue is "Uh uh-oh uh and i gotta say batman's gotta be pretty pissed because uh because john did uh, frost breath Alfred and you don't you don't mess with Alfred that's like rule number one of the bat family never mess with Alfred so what I'm saying is that Batman is going to kill uh, Jonathan Kent next issue now uh, I'm, I'm really excited for this storyline uh, I, I think this is 
they're continuing with very strong runs on the Superman book. Uh, I, I'm just I'm ready ready for whatever else they want to throw at me. And in two weeks, I'm gonna be probably this will be at the top of my stack for for what I'm digging into. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad that you had such a positive, happy, visceral reaction to the book. Yes, well, let's talk about uh, a book that we talked about the first issue a little while ago. This was a very light week for me as far as comics go. I think I only picked up four. Uh, so the book that we've elected to talk about that we've both read is Midnighter and Apollo number 2. Steve Orlando is the writer. Fernando Blanco is the artist. Romulo uh, Ferrado Jr. is on colors, and Josh Reed is on letters. Nick, kind of give us the lowdown on Midnighter and Apollo number two. So basically, um, uh, for those that might not remember, last issue ended with Midnighter in a confrontation with Henry Bendix, another Wildstorm character. Um, Midnighter had was was basically confronted with a um, "There's no easy way out. You'd have to fight your way out." Uh, and at the same time that this is going on, Apollo is trapped up on the surface, fighting against some sort of alien invasion, and these aliens proceed to basically kill Apollo, and, send, and his soul ends up going to hell. Um, and then uh, Midnighter, you know, does make it out, but he basically all he sees is a dead Apollo, though this is a book that revels in the fact that it's a comic book. It's a, it's a DC comic. It's a superhero comic. It's a weird comic. So Midnight is a character that, that that lives in weirdness and despite the fact that he's holding, you know, there's a very touching moment where he finally makes it back to the surface um, to, to where Apollo is um, and he's cradling his, his dead body and, you know, it's just very, very touching. And then he gets to the next scene and he's running with a supporting character Um not that Midnighter thinks it's running. Um, and, you know, she's, like, trying to help him. Like, you know, I'm, you know, Apollo's dead. I'm sorry. I want to help you move on. And he's like, nah, Apollo's not dead. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go find him. Like, just totally, like, you know, this is such a weird world. I can't just accept that, that he's dead. Like, he's, like, he's around here somewhere, basically. And he ends up going off to meet with a, a mystic-type character who I think was sort of cameoed in the first issue um, and he offers to help him and that's basically where they find out that oh, Apollo is in hell um, and Midnighter's like everyone's going to get their wish I'm going to hell Oh, I love um, that line so much that that line was so great um, and there's that, that really chilling scene where like, we, we despite this being a Midnight and Apollo book it's been spending most of its time on Midnight which part of me understands but we do get a scene with Apollo in Hell, where him and a bunch of other, um, you know, human souls or whatever that are down there are all like holding on their backs, like this giant, like walking throne or whatever, is this weird like heart monster that's like a heart, but looks like a like a um, like a scorpion slash heart creature is like on it and talking about like discomfort and blah blah blah. And they, he tries to make a break for it, but it turns out that this was all part of their plan just to make him even more miserable and all the other humans end up falling away slash maybe dying more. And it's... Um, we also find apparently that, that it's a DC villain called Neron, um, oh. who's like a, a, um, a, a fairly frequent hell-related character in DC Comics lore. 
Um, so what's another awesome part about this book is that despite the fact that these are two like staunch Wildstorm characters, and even with DC having a Wildstorm relaunch in the pipeline, like this is a book that's like, no, nah, this is Midnight and Apollo, the DC version. So they're coming up against like there's some Wildstorm DC versions of Wildstorm characters, and then there's like DC characters like Neuron that are coming into play. And it'll be very interesting how A, Midnighter gets to hell, and B, how Midnight and Apollo get out of hell. But David, give me some thoughts and feelings on the book. Uh it it, it was uh it was a solid entry into the storyline so far. I think I liked it a little bit better than the first one. I thought the first issue opened really solid. Uh, and then there's just kind of a little bit of meandering and a little bit of confusion. This one felt a little more cohesive uh, overall. And I think that the first issue did a fine job establishing the relationship. You know, we can we couldn't have this one without that one, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I, as you said, the the scene where um, Midnighter is looking at Apollo in hell and it's this very nightmare scenario uh, really, really worked for me as well. It, it, it established a lot about Apollo's character uh, in, in a very in a very nice way it was uh you know the classic thing about writing is show don't tell mm -hmm. so you can have people saying the whole time like and you kind of had this in the first issue like apollo you're you're the true blue hero you're the guy always trying to save him do things right yada 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 and this was just that that wonderful beautiful illustration of that and punishment for him is to live out those scenarios or have visions of those scenarios where he can never be the hero that is a punishment for him. And that was just so wonderfully done. You know, he's in pain and all that pain could go away if he gives up his memories of his lover, but he's not going to give that up because that's not the kind of guy that he is. He continues on and he fights and no matter how hard he fights, he's always going to fail because he's in hell. Uh, and I, I really, really enjoy that kind of storytelling. Um, the art was really solid. I really liked when they started getting into all the weird trippy drug stuff. Uh, because you kind of had them starting to have some fun with the page itself, like the the some of the edges of some of the pages uh, were kind of those broken up little cubes um, that the, mm. that the T seemed to be doing, and I really like when comics do that, play around with the uh, the layout a bit. Um, like I said, I was a big fan of that last line. A lot of people are going to get their wish. I'm finally going to hell. It had such like a, a 1980s one-liner feel to it. Uh, it was just wonderfully beautiful. Oh, and, and looking at the, the beginning of the issue, uh, there was a point where Midnighter fought eagles with lasers on their heads. I could have read an entire issue of that. So if they ever want to, you know maybe take a, a, a an issue out of this run and, and catch up, get a guest artist on and just show me the room where Midnighter fights a room full of eagles with presumably lasers on their heads. I really love that sequence of all the rooms he had to go through and just catching flashes of them. Um, and it, uh, it was super rad. Well, I recommend if you like that, uh, definitely go back and check out his, the two volumes he wrote of Midnighter. Well, take the previous volume of Midnighter, but there's two collected editions out for that series, and you can get them for both, like, less, or you can get it for... 
about twenty-two dollars. That's not bad. Yeah, I totally but... math wrong. Twenty-four dollars. Oh well, that's terrible. Uh, Might be. I feel like we have been very positive uh, this week. Good. We need books. positivity. People are too negative. We do, but you know, we got we got to be critical. We gotta. Oh, hey man, looking at this, uh, I, I was hopped on Comics Ele- Comicsology, and there's a Warren Ellis image sale going on right now. So money. Well, yeah, I'm not not saying it's going to work out for everyone, but if uh, if you dear listeners do have some money, then head on over to Comicsology and purchase yourself some Warren Ellis. Oh, there's also a Green Lantern sale. I should not be on this site right now. I'm gonna. And a Witchblade sale. Yeah, I'm gonna end up broke by the time things are done here. Uh, it's a, it's a. Fl- wait, oh, it's tomorrow. Sorry, it ends tomorrow. No. But this could help catch up on trees. Injection. I've already, already got caught up on the. Well, I haven't read them all, but I have caught up on the issues. Supreme Blue Rose. I have the first two issues on. I'm not gonna get deep diving into this. Yeah, um, this is not what we should be doing on the show right now. No, but uh, go to Comicsology, check out the sale. Cool stuff. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I think that's pretty much going to be bringing us towards the end of the show here as we're starting to to wrap up. We will get into recommendations here in a moment. Uh, but Nick, any other thoughts, any other, any other books that came out this week, anything you want to mention real quick, give a shout out to, or, or talk about, uh, that death of X sucks. Uh, I just, I read the last issue, the latest issue and it was just no, no bueno. Um, it just, it, this is an event that on one hand, it feels like things are escalating too quickly or maybe even unnecessarily. It's definitely one of those events where even if some characters are maybe acting slightly in character, it's really more that everyone's being positioned and used for the sake of the plot that they're trying to tell than, than actually that it's coming organically from the characters. Um, and I'm pretty sure Cyclops is dead and being and his body is being reanimated with Emma Frost's psychic powers, which, if that's true... I mean, two things are going to happen. Either Cyclops is alive and orchestrating all this himself, and he just has totally gone over the edge. And it's not that we've found out yet exactly what he's done. That's so terrible that he's basically referred to as Hitler uh, in present-day Marvel comics. Um, but if he is dead and it's just him being being a puppet, then that means Emma Frost is basically a modern-day Hitler, apparently, according to how things are so bad. Um, and despite really good art from Aaron Cooter, it's just... Like is not the best showing of Charles Soule and Jeff Lemire, and it could be editorial mandate interference just trying to get this book out the door. So it's weird to have a book that can both be like it, it too much information that it's going too fast, but also doesn't need to be a four issue mini series. Like this could have been like five extra pages in two issues to tell exactly how they're telling it. You know what I mean? See, so but, we had, we, had, we, had, um, we had too much positivity. I had to find some negativity to rim in there just oh. to. Balance you everything out. Me. I lost my pencil. Ha ha ha. Well, they have a good job. As we make our recommendations, we always have to ask ourselves. You boys aren't nerds, are you? Of course we are. And Nick, what do you have to recommend? Um, I will recommend Avengers number one, 
by Mark Wade and Mike Del Mundo as an extension of truly recommending just about anything that Mike Del Mundo has ever drawn. Um, I can see why he might be a style that not everyone can truly appreciate, but if you like a sort of ethereal, imaginative feel to your artwork, something, I think whimsy is the wrong word to describe it, but I mean, Google Mike Del Mundo art, and this guy has has drawn some of the most beautiful covers uh, in Marvel history, uh, and now he actually gets to lend his talents um, to the interiors of, of Marvel's flagship book, and it's just, it's a breathtaking book to look at. Um, basically, it's involving the Avengers fighting Kang the Conqueror once more, um, and you know, it's following in like the, the 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 fallout from Civil War two, but I mean, it really just tries to stand on its own. picks up picks up his pieces. Has the excellent inclusion of Hercules, Marvel's version of Hercules in it, and it's just it's like by the first off, I like I'm reading it. And I'm like, oh, I didn't realize this issue was extra long. Um, so that was nice that uh, you really got to deep dive into this new status quo with some of the new people on the team. Um, and it just seems like it's going to go off in the zany places. Spoiler alert, everyone dies at the end. Cool. But yeah, I recommend that. So go um, read it and stare at his artwork for hours on end. Right on. What do you got, David? Uh, my recommendation this week, you know, I recommend a lot of TV shows on here. So I'm trying to kind of slow that down and give that a break. Uh, I'm going to talk instead about a book that I am currently reading and I'm almost done with. It is called Ready Player One. I don't have the uh, author's name uh, at hand, but I'm sure if I just take a moment and vamp a little bit, I can tell you that it was written by Ernest Cline. Uh, It is a book uh, about a world, uh, our world, presumably, uh, it kind of seems like this is how the author presumes things are going to go. Where uh, the real world is uh, is pretty crappy. Uh, pretty much the the world is is done with. Uh, but everybody escapes into this place called the Oasis, which is uh, a a virtual world that is free to everyone. Essentially, it costs a quarter to buy your way in initially but after that you can access everything for free uh and it is uh it is a recreation of you know the real world places in the real world fantasy worlds all that it's there are all these planets that you can travel to and have these adventures on or you can just so go it's to no man's sky uh i mean if no man's sky had actual content um and, and so you you know you could spend all your time shopping or going to clubs or hanging out with friends or you could spend your time out uh, having adventures in D and D worlds or sci fi worlds or uh, you know whatever basically you can think of. Um, and what happens is the creator of it the the way that it starts is the creator of this world dies, and he says in a video that he releases that everyone. Uh, or that his fortune and the the stake in the company that controls the Oasis um, will all be given to whoever can find uh, this. It's called the egg. Uh, and in order to do that, you have to collect these items and do these tasks and, and solve these riddles that he releases out upon the world. Uh, and it follows a, a, a guy 
five years into the hunt, people have kind of given up on it. But he stumbles. He gets everyone has the first clue. He's the one who solves it and stumbles uh, upon the first item you have to receive, and that kind of kicks everything into high gear. And and it, it's it's very interesting. It's a lot of 1980s references. If you're not really big into the 1980s, then this book might not be for you. The book that takes place in the future because the, has a lot of 1980s references. Because the guy who created the game was obsessed with the 80s, and in order to solve the riddle and everything, you have to uh, have a lot of knowledge about the 80s. Interesting. Uh, I mean, just brief spoiler, um, but one of the things that somebody has to do is they have to go through the entirety of the game of the movie War Games as the main character. And so you have to say lines of dialogue and do actions that the character in the movie did, which you'd only do if you knew it, you know, minute by minute. Interesting. Yeah, it it, it definitely is. But I'm def I'm really enjoying it. Uh, it's not the, my favorite book I've ever read, but I would easily recommend it to a lot of people. And a movie is coming out if you're super lazy, and and want to wait a few years. Uh, but a movie is coming out being directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh, but that's not coming oh, out he's, until... He's I, thought, I think I knew he was producing it, but I didn't realize he was directing it as no, well. Yeah, he's directing it, but it's not slated to come out until 2018, so plenty of time to read it. Uh, Ty Sheridan is, is starring in that, so uh, there's a... Actually, it's got a few connections. Uh, I, I see TJ Miller's also in there, Simon Pegg, lots of, lots of great stuff, people. Anyway... Nice. That's my recommendation for this week, so check it out. Nick, do you have anything else you want to say to the fine people? You're all fine people. Nick, stop hitting on our audience. It's awkward. I can't help it. It is a condition. And what is that condition called? Uh, hit on people-itis. <clears throat> yep, I, I it is. I don't think that's true, but I don't know enough about diseases to refute that. Anyway... You can always find out more about the show by heading on over to heckyeahcomics.com. Uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter at heckyeahcomics. And you can send us lots of, lots, lots of fun stuff. You can send us anything you want uh, within reason and legality to heckyeahcomics at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm also on Snapchat and Instagram under the name Davluz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. Uh, you can find Nick doing something witty that usually I think of at this point in the show, but is not coming to me at this exact time. That's cool. Yeah, cool. Thanks for thanks for letting me slide by on that one. You're welcome. And of course, uh, we will see you here next week, same heck yeah time, same heck yeah channel. Until then, goodbye. Ever.